weeks since Easter, you've been uh, walking with us, tracking with us through the Bible and watching the movement of God's Spirit among His people. You've been, you'll get, uh, you started at Genesis and we'll end in Revelation in a couple of weeks. So you'll get the whole, whole gamut as such. And so today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. But I want us to start in chapter 1 in just a moment. That's why I'm asking you to turn there. You know, over these last few weeks, we've begun to see that from Genesis, we saw that God's Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. He was right there in all of creation as creation was, was happening. We began to see that, you know, that there was a burning bush out in the desert and Moses was, saw that burning bush and came up to it and realized that it was God who was speaking to him out of that burning bush. We also find in, in the book of Exodus where Moses went up onto the mountaintop and he went to meet God and he got the, the Ten Commandments and they were scribed in stone and, and written there for him. We begin to see that the creation is God instructed of the tabernacle and once it was finished, God's Spirit rushed into the tabernacle, filled it with smoke and drove everyone out of the tabernacle. We begin to see as they're moving through the wilderness, that God said, I'll give you a, uh, a fire by, I mean, a cloud by day and a fire by night. You'll be able to see my spirit, recognize that my spirit is right there with you. When Solomon came along uh, some years later and, and built the temple, again, just like the tabernacle, God's spirit ushered itself right into the temple and drove everyone out. That's where you met God. When Daniel was in the lion's den, God's Spirit was there and closed the mouths of the lions. Remember that? Or how about the prophet Ezekiel when he saw this great wheel that was up in the sky and it was emblematic of, of God's Spirit speaking to him and, and leading him. We begin to see even as we've crossed over now into the New Testament. Jesus was gathered at the Jordan River and right there that it says that God the Father uh, uh, and God the Spirit came down in the, in the form of a dove and lit on Jesus. We begin to see or we have seen where God's Spirit is moving among His people, but there's a truth that comes out of all of those instances, and that's this. Typically, God was seen as localized. He was in one place. He was, you could go there and you knew that you could meet Him right there. It may be on the mountaintop. It may be in the desert. It may be in the temple, but God was right there. As we come to the book of Acts, things begin to change dramatically. If you don't recall, Luke and Acts are really parts of two books uh, that come together as one book. Luke wrote the, the gospel, and then the, la the last event in, in, the, in the gospel of Acts was the ascension. Jesus Christ was caught up into the heavens. As you look in um, the first chapter of Acts, you find out once again, it's the repeat of that same story of the ascension. More detailed, though, this time than previously in Luke. But I want you to look with me beginning in verse 10. I just want to read two verses to you. I want us to understand, capture the, the impact of God uh, through Jesus Christ ascending back to God the Father in heaven. And you begin to realize that the, this, Luke records it this way. He says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Why is that significant? Because that is the first time that we understand, other than the lips of Jesus himself, that he is going to come back, return to take us, the believer, with him. It's important to us as we move to this age of the church, the story of the church in the book of Acts, that we understand that Jesus may have gone, but he's coming back. But in that interim time, in that period between his uh, ascension and coming back, there will be the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. It's the time of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. In other words, it's been 50 days since Easter. And if you go back, Easter was at the end of March, and you begin to look at, here we are right at the 1st of June, and we get Pentecost, a celebration time for the church, the birthday of the church, the beginning of the church. And it says, and on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. You know, if you remember back at the time of the crucifixion, when Jesus hung on the cross, you, where do you find the disciples? Where do you find the apostles? They're gone. They're scattered. They're not there. He's dead. He is buried. He rises again on the third day, and he has to call his apostles back to him. And for 40 days, he walked on this earth. Am I okay? All right. I don't hear very well, so I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> so for 40 days, he walked on this earth, and he, again, taught his apostles. He had, he company with them. They gathered together. They, he was instructing them, teaching them. And then as you begin to see in, in Acts chapter 1, the Lord ascended into heaven. The apostles, however, kept the practice. They began gathering together. They were still gathering together. 50 days, seven weeks after Jesus' death. And it says they were in a common place, one place. And look what happens in verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Imagine this picture. You're in a room, maybe even an upper room. The Spirit of God comes rushing in. The sound of that wind coming into that room, similar, echoing what we saw in the tabernacle and the temple as God's Spirit came in and filled the temple with smoke. But it says here that he came in the form of a fire. And that fire came into the room and then it separated itself and it rested on each of the apostles who were gathered there. To me, it's emblematic. It's symbolic of what we saw when they were wandering in the, in the wilderness. So you had the fire of God, the Spirit of God carrying them, letting them know that he was with them at night. But there was fire outside. But in the next verse, it says the more important thing for you and for me, it says that they were what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. That which was external now became what? Internal, inside. God had always been seeing in his Holy Spirit that he lived on a mountain. He lived in this house. He was here in this bush. He was localized. You had to go somewhere to see him. Now what's happening? God's Spirit is where? In us. He has become globalized because as we move, as we go, we take God's Spirit 
everywhere that we go in this world. And we begin to see that God is saying, here is the power, here is the promise of the Spirit that God had, that, excuse me, that Jesus had given to us. And as you begin to see there in verse 4, you see that they had this reward, this extra gift that was given to them. They were able to speak in languages that they do not know. I'm one of those people who thinks I know language and I do not know. I go to China and I say some words and they look at me like I'm crazy because I don't say it in the right tone. Debbie knows what I'm talking about there. I say it in Swahili in in Africa and and they look at me and smile and they kind of get the gist of what I'm trying to say. I act like I know languages, but I really don't. These apostles, these fishermen, these rural people had the gift to be able to communicate in a language that they did not know. And if you look here later in the chapter, it says there, beginning in verse 9, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the people of Macedonia, the Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrenia, and on and on. People from around the world heard a language that they could understand. Some would say when they're looking at this first or the second chapter in Acts, is Pentecost the miracle of speaking, as it says there about the apostles, or is it rather the miracle of hearing, which you have with all of the peoples that are round about? Because it says very clearly, and they heard in their own language. Why do we have an organization like Wycliffe Bible Translators? Because people respond to the gospel so much clearer, so much easier, so much better when the language is in their heart language. It's not the language of another person. So your God speaks my language. Your God knows my clan, my people. And the answer is what? Yes, he does. And so we begin to recognize here at Pentecost that God is moving among his people. He is speaking. He is acknowledging who he happens to be. And I want you to, if you will, to just recognize and just give me a little bit of grace that over the next few verses, we find there's a a sermon, Peter's first real sermon. He's there in Jerusalem. He's there probably near the temple, and he's talking to Jews, and he's sharing with them about this one that we call the Christ. And if you skip down into the story, into verse 36, it says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Here's the truth. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There's the crux of his message. There's the truth of his message. You, the Jews that are all hearing this message, you are the ones who crucified Christ, but he is Messiah. He is the one who is the Christ, the Christos. He is the one who is both Lord and Savior of our lives. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, what? Repent and be what? Baptized. What shall we do? The great question of all of mankind. I have heard the truth of God about Jesus Christ being the Savior and Lord. What is my response? Repent and be baptized. You begin to look in this particular story and you realize that Greek is a 
It's a, it's, a, it's a picturesque language. You know, you take a word and you, and you understand its root meaning and you understand what it, it really is beginning to say. And, and that word cut in their heart is one of those beautiful words. You know, it's, it's the story, or it's the example rather, of someone who is riding a horse. And the horse rides down the road, maybe goes into some mud. And as he clip-clops down the road, what happens on the road and also in that mud? There's an impression of his Hoof print, right? You can follow the horses. You know where they've ridden. How many of y'all been out west? I mean, you know, the guides kind of thing. They follow it. That's what this word is. It's cut into the ground. That's what he's saying. It's cut into their heart. It's emblematic. It's the sign of God himself, of Messiah, cut into their heart. What do we do? Repent, turn from your sins, and be baptized. You begin to look at this particular story and you move on and it says very clearly that that which was uh, God just around us, before us, behind us, maybe even on us, is now what? In us. In verse 42 is where we're going to focus today and it begins that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Pentecost is the birthday of the church. We've seen these foundation elements of what the church happens to be. You begin to look here, and, and I'm going to take a little bit of license because of the latter part of, of verse 47, and it says that they were saved. So that's important, that the, those, the, church in the, the people in the church, they are saved. They have uh, recognized that Jesus Christ has forgiven their, their sins. But it says very clearly in, in verse 42 here that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now I want you to think with me just for a moment. We are 50 days, 55 days, just a few days, eight weeks from Jesus' death. Paul's not on the scene. Peter, James, John, none of them have written a single word about Jesus None of the New Testament that you and I have existed. What were they teaching? What was the apostles teaching that the people were hearing? It's the stories of Jesus. It's their recollection of all that Jesus had said, all that he had done. That's what he was sharing. That's what they were sharing with the crowd. That's what they wanted people to know. And it says very clearly that they were teaching or preaching, if you'd like to use that word. They were fellowshipping. They enjoyed company. They didn't have cookies and punch. You know, uh, they had a few other things, but I, we won't go there. But anyway, they had some things, and they enjoyed one another's company. But it also says that they broke bread. They ate. It was important in that culture. It still is in our culture. Why, do, why are we Baptists? Because we like covered dish dinners. You know, but, uh, you know, you sit there, and you realize that they like to eat. And so they fellowship together. They enjoyed the breaking of bread together. And they did what? They prayed. You know, I don't want to burst Andy's bubble, and I think he's gone, so that's really good. The church should be about teaching and prayer, not about singing, just so you know. <laughs> but in the next few verses, look at these words. It says, everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Here's a good question for us as, as the church. 
When was the last time that you were awed by God? When was the last time that you saw God work in a miraculous way that could only be attributed to Him? Wouldn't you long for that? Wouldn't you lust for that? Wouldn't you want that to see Him work in your life and in my life that way? He goes on and and the writer Luke says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. In other words, they, they took what they had. They, they helped one another. It says they sold their possessions and their goods. They gave us to everyone as they had need. The New Testament talks us from the time of Jesus through the, to the apostles. We find out taking care of the widows, taking care of the orphans, taking care of those who have need, the responsibility that we have as a church. And then it says, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Can you imagine going to church every day? You don't have to answer that question. But every day they went to the temple. That's where they knew that God was. That's where they knew that they could gather safely. That's where they knew that there would be Jews who would be open and potentially listening to the gospel as it was presented to them. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised the Lord praise God and enjoy the favor of all people. And what happened? What was the result? People, people came to know the Lord, the foundation of the church. Now, I'm going to take my time this morning and I'm going to tell you or suggest several things to you about what is it that makes up the church? What does it mean to be the church? We're the church of Jesus Christ. We're the one that he established. Why Are we different than any other organization on the face of this earth? And there's some wonderful Christian organizations, some wonderful godly people in ministry. But what is it about the church? It begins there in Acts 2.47. We all have a common salvation experience. Not all the same. You know, if I'd ask Kyle or if I'd ask Bobby... You know, if I'd ask Alan, how did you come to faith in Christ? Our stories would all be different. But we all came to faith in Christ as the only way of salvation. It's common. It's the singular way that we share in common of salvation through God's grace. But what makes the church slightly different than other organizations is that we're not really homogeneous. We're not all together. We're not all exactly alike. That scares us a little bit because we like things that are the same. You've heard me say this before. I think you buy a chair, put it in the house and where you put it, you ought to stay there till you move to the next house. You know, it doesn't need to move. Or if you put the dishes on the, on the cabinet in, in the kitchen, that's where they ought to stay. You know, Kathy had me the other day move glasses and I'm going, what am I going to do? The glasses are supposed to be here. Now they're over here, you know. And so for three weeks, I kept going back over here. New habit, you know. That's just not right. (laughs) The church has a mixture of mature believers, those who are maturing, and those that are not there yet. That's what makes us different We have people that are the apostles. We have people that are strong in their faith, that have been with the Lord, walk with the Lord, are maturing in their faith. And we have many that are 
less than that, moving in that direction. And then we have those that are really outside of the faith. And when you look at the writings of Paul, you begin to see that struggle that they had. Why was it that Paul kept writing to the church between the Jewish believers and the, and the Greek believers? Because they came out of a different experience, a different culture, and one was not like the other. Why was it that there was trouble in the churches at Corinth and the churches at, at, at Galatians, particularly about uh, doctrine? It was because those who were new in the church, or not even believers yet, were influencing doctrine within the church. That's the role of those who are over here. They are to keep us true to the gospel, true to the faith. We're not homogeneous. The church is not homogeneous. We may be different in language, different in color of skin, different in experience, different in class or social structure, but we are united in one faith, one baptism, and one salvation. That's what causes the church to be the church. One faith, one salvation, and one baptism. We're singular in that belief. We have to hold on to that belief. We can never, ever let it go, regardless of our own experience, regardless of our own culture, regardless of our own facial expression, Regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our economic status, those things we always hold true. But there's a second thing that Acts teaches us. As the gospel was spread out to the nations, it was spread because of the empowerment and the filling of the Holy Spirit. What's different about the church? We have that spirit power, that spiritual power of the Lord himself. It's, a, a, it's an empowerment that we can have joy, not happiness, but joy in our life. Why are we joyful? We're joyful because we have been forgiven of sin and we have been released from the power of sin, the domination of sin in our lives. That's what unites us as the church. That's what brings us together. That's what is the commonality that we have. We all have this understanding that, you know, that I have God leading in my life, giving me power to go in a particular direction. In other words, that, that I might uh, be, be the person that God has called me to be. The power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Point three, it's about baptism. It's believers baptism. I've been to Israel. I've been down to the Jordan River. It's not a great, it's a little creek, by the way, if, just so you know. But uh, the Jordan River. And you begin to see it when Jesus went down to, to John the Baptist and was there to, to be able to be baptized. I don't think that John the Baptist took a, a handful of water and poured it over top of him. My understanding of history, you know, is that Jesus went under the water. Believer's baptism. Believers' baptism is also a collective thing. It's a, it's a church thing. It's a thing that a body of believers, a fellowship of believers, uh, does for and with one another. The only example outside of that in the book of Acts is the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember him? 
Philip went down into the desert. The eunuch was there reading the book of Isaiah. And, and Philip, as such, led him to faith in Christ. And he said, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said nothing and, and baptized, I baptized him there in the desert. That's a uniqueness too. Just think about that one. But, uh, you know, but there he was baptized in the desert alone. And then Philip left and he went back. Every other instance in the scripture, we find that it is a celebration of the church, of a body of believers, believers' baptism. You're not baptized into the church. You are baptized into the kingdom of God. You're baptized into the, uh, a, a, a body, a, a community of faith. That's who we are. If you want to join the church, that's great. But if you want to be baptized and a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what the Scripture teaches us early on. You begin to see, fourthly, that uh, you find there in, in verse 42, the church is unique because of its prayer, because of its prayer life. You know, it, it's corporate. It's also individual. It's for both of us as, as, as individuals, but as, as a body of, of, of believers as well. James wrote sometime later, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? Avails much. The role that we have as the church to, to pray. You know, I, for the last two and a half years, I've been teaching the Onward Sunday School class. And one of the joys that we have is as, as we gather together, as we share prayer concerns. And so to be able to pray for one another, and then to get it in an email that week, and to be able to have that day by day that we can lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ. The real question is, whatever happened? to corporate prayer. When was the last time that you were on your knees? When was the last time you saw this church on their knees praying for God's Spirit to move among its people? What happened? It's almost been pushed aside individually as well as corporately. Fifthly, you begin to look at this passage and you see that there is a sharing. There's, there's almsgiving. There's benevolence. There's helping of other people, which is the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters helping one another. And then lastly, number six, it's the communion around this table. What sets us apart, what makes us unique, it's this table right here. We gather here as believers. We gather here as the body of Christ. We gather here to celebrate and to remember what Jesus did on the cross. This point in the book of Acts, that was only about eight weeks ago. Just a couple of months. Jesus had his apostles in the upper room. He had a great uh, Passover celebration with them. And they enjoyed dinner. And then at the end of dinner, he began to teach them. John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. Some of what you heard last week from Pastor Kyle. You begin to see that he also did a very simple activity. <clears throat> he took a loaf of bread and he took a cup of wine and he said, Gentlemen, this bread, this symbolizes my body. This is the representation of me. I want you to know that I am willingly walking to this cross. I know what's ahead of me, and I'm not turning away. I'm going full ahead to what is coming. I'll be bruised, I'll be beaten, and I will ultimately die. And then he took this cup, and he said, this is my blood. 
This is my life. I want you to know I spill it out. It's not taken from me. I give it away. Why? So that you can have forgiveness of sin. So that you can have relationship, restored relationship with God the Father. Some of the greatest words, greatest promise in all of Scripture, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It's complete. The price has been paid. The law has been satisfied. Now you have been restored into relationship with the Father. We come today and we gather around this table as the church has done basically for 2,000 years. A time of looking back of what God has done through Jesus Christ. A time of memorial. But you know it's also that time of looking forward. It's that time of understanding what is to come. Just as we read in Acts chapter 1, he's coming back. Why do you stand looking in the sky? He's going to come back. He's going to take you unto himself. Once you get there, Revelation says, we're going to sit at a great banquet feast. You know, we're going to have mashed potatoes and sweet potatoes and ham. And I don't know what we'll have, by the way. Uh, But we're going to enjoy the fellowship. Isn't that what it said in Acts chapter 2, the fellowship of the believers as we gather with our Lord. As we come to the table this morning, I'm going to ask you if you just bow your head for just a moment and let's pray. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for your word, for the instruction that we find. I thank you for this memorial table, a time of celebration for us. It is a time of looking back in remembrance, but Lord also, It's a time of celebration of what you've done in my life and in our lives. It's a time of looking ahead of what you're going to do for us, the promise that you've given to us. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.